Sometimes easy is a sign that it's like, that's the direction you should go in, right? But I find a lot of entrepreneurs sometimes that feel like, well, if I just, if I just raise a, you know, a little more money, if I, just, if I just work a little harder, like if I just get this next deal, like it's all going to be different. And I've generally found that's just not true. Greetings, USC, and welcome to Spark XM. I'm your host, Mark Pockervon, and I'm joined here by my co-host, right-hand man, associate, Grant Glinner. Hey, Mark. How's it going? Not bad. How are you doing today? I am doing great. Good to know you're doing great. And next, to our left, we have Ben Chet, who hey, is coming in as our third guest host today. Great to be here. Great to have you. And side note, Ben actually put this whole interview together. He got Mike to come in on such short notice. So we're really excited to have you in the studio today. And Mike, welcome. Thanks for having me. Of course. Great <clears throat> to have you too. And before we get into Mike's experiences and learn about what he has to say, just wanted to give our listeners a quick background on SparkXM and what our mission here is on the podcast. So SparkXM is your platform to learn specifically about what's going on within the USC and general LA startup ecosystem. And now to our guest, Mike Jones. Quick bio on him and some background. Mike originally hails all the way from Oregon. Mm -hmm. He calls himself, not calls himself, he is a longtime entrepreneur. And in college, he even founded his first successful internet company. And since then, he's never looked back. Fast forward to today, and he's currently the CEO of Science. And some of their main invest investments, you might recall some of these companies or know about them, Dollar Shave Club, Dog Vacay, Wishbone. And he also happens to be the former CEO of MySpace. Anyways, without further ado... Let's get right to our man of the hour. So to start things off, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself, who Mike the person is, before we get into your actual career and experiences? Sure. So, uh, you know, I, I grew up, as you said, in Oregon, and uh, I grew up as, a, as a, you know, a son of an entrepreneurial family. So my parents were all, were both self-starters, and my grandparents were very self-starters, so I was kind of born in a you know, into a family that it was used, you know, it was normal to kind of start your own company mm -hmm. and carve your own path. Um, you know, I was provided a lot of resources as a kid and was in, you know, great public schools that gave me a lot of abilities to try different things. So I think at an early age, I became comfortable with just like figuring out things I wanted to do and finding a way to do them. Um, in my freshman year in college, I met my, you know, I met a, I met a girl who became my girlfriend and later on my wife. So I've been with my wife since um, freshman year in college. And when she got into grad school in L.A., we moved to L.A. And now, you know, my role is as a father. I have two kids. We live up in Malibu. Uh, I'm a super active angel investor and pretty active in the Los Angeles technology community. And then, you know, my day job is, you know, running this uh, investment fund slash incubator called Science, which is in Santa Monica, where we, where we work with early stage founders. Nice. Yeah. Cool. Great. So you went to University of Oregon for mm -hmm. marketing. Mm -hmm. uh, could you actually give us a timeline of how your career has progressed since your undergraduate experience? Sure. So, uh, you know, in freshman year in University of Oregon, I, uh, you know, became really bored with school. And um, <laughs> I was in a joint like marketing slash international program or international studies business thing. And I uh, and the, the sophomore year in college, my wife got accepted into a, a Washington, D.C. internship with the finance committee. 
and uh, my then girlfriend. Uh, I couldn't possibly imagine being without her, so I found my way into my own internship, and so I lived in D.C. for the first part of my sophomore year. When I re- when I returned back to Oregon um, for at University of Oregon, I was really bored. And so I got a job at the Computing Center, and that gave me a lot of access because at that point, like, the web was just becoming. Like, it was like Mozilla was out and these early web browsers, and suddenly I had access to, like, a bunch of computers and huge servers and all this stuff. So I learned a lot there. Uh, by the by the by my junior year, um, I'd started a magazine, like an on-campus magazine with just a bunch of friends, and we did – we covered – we'd use this magazine to kind of cover uh, all the stuff we wanted to, which was, like, interviewing – rock stars and uh, testing new cars and getting free clothes and stuff, like all the cool stuff that you'd want to do when you were, you know, broke as a student. And so we started this magazine. Eventually, I learned how to take that magazine into a website. Um, And then I realized that, you know, by my junior year, companies really wanted websites because it was at that moment, like kind of it is right now with with mobile. And so I started a consulting company. So um, I found this empty warehouse in Eugene, Oregon. Um, I packed it full of freelancers so I could pretend to have a staff. And then I rolled in clients uh, into my big, you know, fancy advertising agency that was essentially like an, an open air cement floored warehouse with a bunch of freelancers that were paying me desk fees. Nice. And, uh, you know, and I started learning how to make money, you know, and just like figuring out my way through business. So um, that company uh, extended down to Los Angeles when I moved down to L.A. after school. Um, eventually, I sold that company to one of my partners. Then I um, started another company. And with that second company, it happened to be called Userplane. And um, that, after four or five years, was acquired by AOL. And that was the first time I kind of got exposed to, like, raising money and venture capital, which I didn't end up doing, but I had tried. And then eventually learning how to sell a business. And that was obviously a thrilling moment because I'm like, oh, my gosh, like, I had an idea. I put a bunch of people together. We built this thing. And then someone paid us, like, an exorbitantly large amount of money for it. (laughs) Like, that's a really good thing to do. Let's do more of that, right? And And at this point, I'm, like, 30, right? So, like... You know, that was like a five-year time frame. So my first company was kind of, you know, 20 to 25, and then my second company was 25 to 30. Then at age 30, I f- had my first job, which was working at AOL as a senior vice president and, you know, whatever, they acquired my company. So, And I was a curious guy, so I spent a lot of time nosing around AOL and learning what a big business looks like. I then started uh, investing into startups um, because I'd kind of been around the merry-go-round, and I mm-hmm. thought maybe I'm, maybe I'm smart as a related investor. Um, so I did that for a few years. Then I was recruited by a private equity firm who um, who we bought and sold of three different businesses. Uh, they were all kind of technology-enabled businesses. So then I started learning, like, oh, this isn't just one thing that happens. This is like, you can do this. Like, you can build and drive value and sell things. Then I was recruited from the private equity firm to go to MySpace. And I was there for maybe three or four years, uh, which I'm sure we can talk more about. Mm-hmm. And then after that, I was like, I want to do more of this. And so I set up this little entity called Science uh, to kind of give myself a platform and resources to do it more uh, formally. Yeah. So can you actually give our listeners a background about Science? Sure. Um, what exactly it does, some companies you've worked with, yeah. and I guess where you see it heading right now. Sure. So uh, you know, we focus, you know, we, I set up Science and I raised a bunch of money and I put uh, kind of the best operators I knew in the building, like a great guy in marketing and a fantastic designer and a really smart finance crew. And I thought like what we would do is we'd find kind of pre-seed founders, like somebody that was passionate about an idea and maybe they hadn't ever built anything and maybe they hadn't raised money, but they had a passion around a concept. And we would kind of co-found the business with them. We'd be like, come in, sit in our offices. We'll provide you some resources. We'll provide you people. We'll provide you cash. We'll, I'll jump on your board and let's start the journey together, right? 
And that's the kind of foundation of science is we partner with, with people that have vision. In many cases, we're partnering before they've done anything. Like they've, they literally just have an idea. Sometimes we partner with people that already are built businesses and sometimes we even buy businesses. But fundamentally, okay. we're looking for passionate founders that have vision that we want to build businesses with. We do it in three areas. We do it uh, in commerce, we do it in marketplaces, and we do it in mobile, in kind of social mobile. And in commerce, we did Dollar Shave Club. So yeah. he pitched us an idea. We uh, you know, formed a partnership at a really early stage, and I've been with him on that journey ever since. Yeah, that was one of your first investments. That's one right? of our first investments. Yeah, yeah. Uh, just remarkable. Mm-hmm. I mean, and that's more of a credit to him than it is to us. I mean, like, we got lucky. He, You know, Mike Dubin's, like, just a complete next-generation, you know, founder, leader, visionary, and, uh, and we were fortunate to kind of pair with him. Um, but so we did a lot of commerce deals. Dollar Shave Club became our biggest. Uh, then marketplaces, these kind of two-sided you know, marketplaces, we did a lot of them, of which Dog Vacay became our mm-hmm. biggest. Um, you know, uh, and then the third segment is mobile, and we built, we built slash invested slash acquired tons of stuff in mobile. But this one app called Wishbone uh, today is our biggest. Now, in addition to those three, we also have some incredible other marketplaces, like uh, numerous USC grads have started companies within science as well as UCLA. You know, Handstand is a fitness trainer's marketplace. Famebit is a marketplace for content creators, which is huge. Uh, we partnered with somebody and built a company called Hello Society that we just sold to New York Times. So there's a there's a breadth of a portfolio underneath us. We did a big deal with Home Hero, which is a marketplace for in-home elder care. So we've done a lot of companies. People, we happen to be known for kind of those three big ones. But yeah, yeah. So a quick peruse of science online yeah. shows that you guys talk about something called the growth platform. Yeah. And is, do you have anything else to add about that? Is it basically what you just described well, right no, now? Well, no. You know, the, I guess the way we, the way I think about growth is that um, if we all had, you know, if we, if we all had, you know, business concepts, um, and we all thought that we were going to execute and be successful, one thing I've generally found is like everything is about driving customer customers into whatever thing you're going to do. So whether it's downloads to an app or it's orders into an e-commerce website or it's participants in a marketplace or it's whatever, you know, growth is by far the key, you know, and I have yet to ever find a startup that went out of business because they grew too fast. But I've seen, you know, tons of businesses that failed because they couldn't find growth in whatever metric that is. So we have a fairly systematic way that we approach businesses on identifying like how they're going to grow. And uh, I find that like, if you get growth right, funding falls in line, revenue falls in line, product falls in line, everything else we can solve for but if you don't get growth right, it doesn't really work. And so we've thought we've kind of formalized something called the growth platform. It's a mix of tactics, resources, some companies we own, some people in our group, and then kind of an overall analytics approach we take to things. And we look at I kind of look at everything through that through that lens. Uh, and and I think it's been you know successful for us. Nice. Yeah. So among these companies that you've worked with uh, and the projects that you've started within science or people within science have started, has there been uh, a favorite experience that you've had uh, or most rewarding where you feel like you've been able to make a really tremendous impact in someone's life or in a company's trajectory? That's a good question. I mean, that's probably a better question left for those founders. But if I think about the things that, uh, you know, are meaningful to me, um, certainly I, you know, the, you know, first off, is my my door is very open to entrepreneurs. So I I typically feel like it's my job, especially in Los Angeles, to be an open, truthful resource to entrepreneurs to ask questions and find their path through starting companies. 
Now, certainly that's true for the portfolio companies inside science, but it's also honestly true with just entrepreneurs. So I met with two startups today, right? My goal in those meetings is to somehow pull back the curtain on the mysteries of building businesses, raising money, driving revenue, selling companies, because it is a big mystery and there's not necessarily a standard rule book for it. And in LA, there's not a ton of resources around it. So, um, so the meaningful things to me are when I bump in entrepreneurs that say, I had a meeting with you three years ago and you told me these things and I did these things and they worked. You know, luckily, in more cases, they say that than I met with you three years ago and you told me these things and they didn't work at all and you gave me horrible <laughs> advice, right? Yeah. In most cases, I feel like people hopefully walk away with something that makes their business better after interactions with me. That's not always true, but some in most cases. And I think, and I think on the early stages working with founders, I mean, I'll be at the end of a board meeting and some founder we worked with five years ago come up to me and be like, you know, you told me this really funny thing. And I'm always like, oh, that's so, you know, that's, I can't believe I said that to you or like, that was ridiculous or whatever. <laughs> so it's meaningful to me to understand how the strategy and the resources and the, you know, and the, and the concepts that science brings forward uh, gets realized within early founders. Um, so that's, that's personally rewarding. It's obviously also rewarding when we come up with a strategy and then people execute that strategy and that works. Like that's equally rewarding, right? right. So we have a lot to cover, but cool. before we wrap up the whole science conversation yeah can you i guess explain to our listeners the background of the name science kind of where that came from sure so uh you know i you know i i found that um you know in in constructing startups i was looking for i was looking for, for you know formulaic growth i was looking for business models where you build something and you can pay to market or build viral features that drives a customer that creates revenue that gets reinvested in the business that is a kind of predictable, you know, model-oriented growth path. Like, that's the startups I really like. Like, ones that I can construct a model and logically understand how they progress. Um, and so I looked at it as much more a scientific method, where I'm like, I want to try some things, I want to pull the data from those attempts, I want to decide which worked, and then I want to go deep on those methods. And so I, I you know, I debated with, with the kind of co-founding team early days of, like, the name, but this, the name science just kind of stuck because it mm -hmm. spoke to the practice on how we approach startups. For us, it wasn't art, it wasn't luck, it wasn't just random things that kind of worked. It was, it was a carefully constructed methodology towards growth and towards company construction that, um, that we wanted to convey, and that's, that's why we chose science. Many of our listeners are, of course, college students, and they grew up in this whole social media age. Mm -hmm. So basically, can you explain to our listeners, um, I guess, the process of when you became MySpace CEO, CEO and kind of how that whole came about? Yeah, um, it was funny. I was uh, recalling this to, uh, to uh, the CEO that recently sold her business um, in the science portfolio. But, you know, when, I was a, when my business was acquired by AOL, I was super uh, confused by AOL at the time because they were still like half a dial-up company and half a website. It was like the weirdest thing. And I didn't have a lot of access to the CEO because he had only met me like once before they acquired my business. And he was running, obviously, AOL, and it was quite big. So I um, one night, like, I don't know, I somehow decided I was going to create this strategic overview of AOL. For some reason, I decided that was important for me to do, even though... My company was this little company inside the AO ecosystem. So I built this poster, like it's like the size of a wall. And, um, and I printed it, and I rolled it up in this big tube. And I, and I called the CEO's assistant up, and I'm like, I'm gonna, I, wa I want to come to Dulles, and I've got to present this thing to John. She's like, okay. You know, <laughs> so I got this appointment with John. I flew out to Dulles, and I walked in his office, which is some big office with like the fancy bathrooms and the, you know, all the crazy stuff that a big executive has. And I pulled out my tube. And I unscrolled this 
big map, you know, and I'm like, I I figured out AOL, like, like just crazy, right? Like just, there's no, there was no reason for me to do that. It was just completely ridiculous, really. Right. And, uh, and he and I formed a friendship over that moment where he was just like, I I don't know who you are or what you're talking about or like what this (laughs) is, but like you've, whoa, you know what I mean? And, um. And, uh, and suddenly then I would pop into different offices on AOL and they'd have this poster of mine like up on the wall. And I'd put my name on the bottom and they're all proud. Like, I don't know. Like, I, they, they who knows? Print photocopies of it? Yeah, like, uh. I, I probably left them there. I mean, who knows why? <laughs> There's more than one. <laughs> Dude, like, I, I don't know why at that moment. Like, there, there, that wasn't my job. It wasn't required of me. For somehow, I felt that I needed to do that. I needed to somehow encapsulate the chaos that was AOL in a diagram. I don't know why. Um, and, you know, at that point, after doing that, I suddenly got invited to all these senior executive summits and stuff. And then John uh, eventually was fired um, from AOL through like a really ridiculous Time Warner thing. And then um, he, you know, we stayed in touch um, and we became friends. And then when he took over as chief digital officer at News Corp, you know, he called me up and said, hey, uh, I'm putting together a management team to go into MySpace because it's having a lot of challenges and I'd like for you to be part of it. Uh, and I, and I, at that point I was running this private equity thing. And so I was like on vacation when he called and I flew back in like in my nastiest clothes and ended up at like some, you know, private room in the four seasons with two other guys and John. And he's like, this is the team. Like we're, we're going in, you know? And I'm like, Whoa. And, uh, you know, and then I, we went through a long negotiation, but I, um, but I felt like for me being like somebody had run small companies and medium sized companies, this was a unique time, you know, for me to live in LA and run a big internet thing that was having a lot of challenges. And I think I thought to myself, like, maybe, maybe I could be one of the guys that figure out how to turn around a big internet asset. And so I took on, I took on that role with those two other, uh, executives. And then by the, you know, year two, I was the only one of those executives left. Um, and then, you know, by year four, we essentially sold it off for pieces. So while you were CEO of MySpace, there was this sort of transitionary period into, uh, something that was still a social network, but more focused on, media and entertainment. So can you talk a little bit about that and how that idea came about and how you approached it? Yeah, well, I think when we, you know, when, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot that changed between the moment that a person initially signed up for MySpace, the time that Friendster or Facebook became, and then kind of what became with identity online. And so remember when most people signed up for MySpace on the early days, they were doing it under, you know, anonymous names, fake accounts and they were you know using it to like hook up with friends and hook up with (laughs) girls and it was all about like my internet friends right it was like oh my internet friends like that was an actual saying people would use about their myspace friendships right and um and then you know as facebook came out suddenly facebook is like we're going to use real names and we're going to create real graph in the real world and we're going to do it around colleges and we're going to go expand and obviously that's a much better idea now i i Fundamentally, I don't believe MySpace could have done that because at the time when MySpace started, people were still like, I don't know if I want to use my real name online. Yeah. Can I put my picture into the right. website? Mm-hmm. Then MySpace is like, look, social is really cool. And then, you know, Facebook's like, social is really cool if you know who the heck these people are. And then suddenly that takes off. So it felt to me like with MySpace, uh, we had all this music because they had done this elaborate music deal and everybody was embedding music all over MySpace and these bands were there and they were hooking up with fans and it was the whole thing. And it felt to me like there was no way we were going to win the personal graph. There's no way that I was going to get you to put your baby pictures on MySpace. Like, if you did it, you shouldn't be doing it. You should have done it on Facebook, you know? <laughs> and so it was like, look, we, we're not going to win the personal graph. 
You know, we got all these music and assets. People like talking to band members, like, let's go after the personal expression media thing. Um, and so that was you know, one part of a few different strategies we attempted, all of which essentially failed, right? I think that was a, it was a logical thesis. You know, the, the, I think the overall message there was like, once you had, you know, hundreds of millions of people sign up for MySpace, and then hundreds of millions of people stopped using MySpace, it was really hard to bring them back if you called it MySpace. Right. It was very, very difficult. And so it's not that a, a declining company can't be turned around, but I think a singular brand within a company that's facing you know, a massive decline and when it was previously in the public spotlight, I think it's hard to bring that brand back. So I'm really, really interested in how your experiences differ as a board member and helping run these high-growth startups and how those experiences differed from running an established company like MySpace that's kind of on the decline and you're trying to bring it back up into, uh, bring it into the light? Yeah, I mean, there are certainly vastly different experiences. I mean, with MySpace, you know, every day was like, you know, every day was a very difficult day, right? Because essentially every day was worse than the previous day on all your kind of core metrics. There mm. were, every day there was fewer people going to the website. Every day there was fewer revenue. Every day there were fewer banner ads being shown. Every day there was worse press. So, you know, walking into uh, that type of situation, I think, really tests leadership. And one of the things that I uh, felt really proud about was after the initial wave of executives left and we reconstructed an executive team, we ended up with this incredible team. And um, that team, in the face of, like, every metric declining and every person getting fired and every day being worse than last, they just did an incredible job. You know, I mean, I walked away being like that team was incredible and they were given a, mo a moment in time to really show great leadership of being like, I know it's hard and I know it's brutal and everyone thinks we're going to fail, but let's try one more time. Right. And you think about leadership and you think that like great leaders are both hopefully great people that have leadership skills, but that are also given the opportunity to be great in leadership. Right. And in fantastic times, uh, it's often not an opportunity to be great in leadership, but in uh -huh. highly distressed times, people can rise to become great leaders. And I felt like my management team uh, that we built there was just incredible. And I'm not sure whether, honestly, ever another time in their lives, they may get a similar opportunity to be a great leader in the face of, you know, huge adversity. So that that's, you know, that was a, obviously a long winded way to talk about leadership. But that made the days really interesting, really fun, really challenging and really hard. And and I enjoyed it. You know, I mean, I like really hard challenges and, and I work hard and I and I bring all my all to it. So. Um, and my team did too. So that was really fun. You know, on, you know, once that you're in the, you're not in the operational seat, right? When you're in the, I'm going to empower and give confidence and guidance to a CEO or a management team, you know, you're very hands off, right? You have to be very respectful over the boundaries of where it's operations and where it's like strategy and, and guidance and, and kind of a board level role. You know, you're, you're typically not tied into the daily activities. You're not fighting those fires. You can't bypass management or else it causes issues. So you have to take a much deeper investment with the CEO, right? And how you interact with that CEO and what you can provide to that CEO at all times to hopefully make them a stronger leader in their business. Right. Um, so it's just, it's a very different thing. Um, you know, the pace is very different. The, the connectivity to the actual product is very different. Um, and there are certain CEOs that really allow me into their organizations and they're happy for me to be deeply involved, which is really fun for me. And there are certain CEOs that don't want that. And I'm totally respectful of that. And I work with them directly and I, I stay out of their hair and let them go and build their business. Okay. So we've covered signs, we've covered MySpace. Now, we kind of want to ask you some just general questions about your ideas, sure. thoughts, life. So 
One question I wanted to ask, and have you ever, so have you heard of the book Zero to One? Mm-hmm. And have you ever gotten a chance to read it yet? Yeah. So one of the questions he poses in the beginning of one of the first chapters was, what's one important truth that very few people agree with you on? So, And to clarify, Zero mm-hmm. to One for our listeners is a book by Peter Thiel. Um, and yeah, so very famous entrepreneur. Yeah. Um, and yeah, just want to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, well, I, I think the, the book's fantastic. It was taken from the class notes, right, that he taught yeah. at Stanford. <laughs> and uh, I read the class notes before it was a book and, and really appreciated it. I think he is one of the clearest thinkers in, you know, in early stage entrepreneurship and how it, how it impacts an economy. Um, so one of the truths that, that I believe that few people believe, is that yeah. the question? I don't know about that. Um, it's a tough one. Yeah, <laughs> on the spot, it's hard to think of. Well, I mean, let's not talk about what everyone believes, but I think there's a, I think there's a a, a, a general conception that, um, you know, hard, brutally hard work and passion will drive success. Uh huh. And I think that's actually pretty incorrect. So, I've definitely myself put brutally, and this isn't even like let me use me. Let's use. I've worked with an entrepreneur who was who put in brutal hard work and uh, and had deep passion, and they were and I've seen them become highly unsuccessful. Right? <laughs> um, I've also seen entrepreneurs that are just smart strategically uh, without very hard work create super amazing huge companies. Wow. So one of the things that I came to believe was, um, and I talked to my wife about this a lot, which is this idea that like sometimes what's easy is what's right. Like, I think as Americans, somehow we're programmed that, like, hard things are good, you know? <laughs> like, and, I, and, yeah, difficult challenges are good and interesting, but but sometimes easy things are the right things to do. Hmm. Do like, you have any examples yeah. of, of that? Well, certainly I can name many examples where people think that the next $500,000 somehow changes the trajectory. Hmm. But I'll give you a simpler one. So mobile apps are all about retention. A 1,000 people install your app. How many people open it the next day and the day after, right? Totally. And generally, if you have a few hundred to a few thousand people install your app and only 15% of those people open it the day after the install, that's it. Like you have a 15% D1 retention and that better be what you're hoping for because that's what you've got. It's water into a sieve, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So all me entrepreneurs are like, well, I, I just need to raise money and market it more. And I'm like, no, <laughs> like if you pour more water into a sieve, it's still an empty sieve, right? Right. But they always believe it's just more users. And I remember having an argument with this entrepreneur. I'm like, it's not more users. You could pump as many users as you want. 15% stay deep, you know, the first day. And by the end of the month, there'll be zero left. It does not matter how much water you put into a sieve. Like <laughs> you will have the same result right. at some point. Right. And, and I see that often. And so, I remember with my entrepreneurs, even myself, you know, we have the statement of like, if you do the same thing as yesterday, please don't expect a different result than today. You know, so, you know, if you find entrepreneurs are building a business and they're un- unhappy with the outcome, they shouldn't keep doing the same thing. They right. should go do something different. But a lot of entrepreneurs are just thinking that somehow next week's going to be better than the former. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and for me, I just don't believe that's true. And so I do look often at signs for things that are easy. Like, what did you do? What, how did the user, did the user do that? Like, why, why did they do that? Was that easy for the user? Did they like that? That's what we should do. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like, I look for ways where you can find easy paths within these businesses or ideas or people. And typically, the easiest one and the most obvious one is the right one. But I've seen a lot of entrepreneurs go the other way. 
Um, so on a pretty different note, um, are there certain habits or tendencies that you've developed over time uh, that you feel like have contributed to your success, um, either consciously or unconsciously? Um, well, and I mean, I, I could certainly talk about the habits that can that comprise maybe me, um, but I'm not saying they're good. Like, so we can talk about, I'm not saying they're good, right? They're just, they're just my habits, right? So for better or for worse, you know, rarely an email for me will go unanswered within an hour. And oh. like, I do not go to sleep without inbox zero, right? That's and that doesn't, yeah. like, it just every night when I go to bed, my plate is cleared. And I always had a fear, and I learned this heavily at MySpace, which was like, I never wanted to be the slow point in a process. Mm -hmm. I never wanted someone to say, we didn't get that done because Mike didn't email back fast enough. We're waiting for Mike. I never, I, I thought my job in any organization was to be the most fluid process and just to get decisions done quickly and to give that feedback and never have a backlog. So I really think great leaders pound through inboxes and make sure they never are the backlog. And I found, you know, at times when I've interacted on emails with guys like, Bill Gates or Steve Jobs are great, great CEOs uh, in technology. It's amazing to me to get an email back from them in an hour. <laughs> and mm -hmm. sometimes I meet CEOs that are running these tiny companies and they're like, I just can't. And I'd be like, I emailed you about this thing. Or like somebody's like, I didn't hear back. And I'm like, hey, did you get this thing? And they're like, oh, yeah, I, got, I just haven't gotten to it. And I'm like, you know what? If Steve Jobs can find a way to clear his email every hour, maybe you can too. Yeah. You know, and so. So one of my habits is I am I'm not going to be a stop point, uh, and I'm going to get through my email fast. And if it's yes or no, I'm going to be clear with it, and I'm never going to go to bed with a whole bunch of extra stuff to do. So, but what that means is like I'm on my phone all the time, <laughs> right? And I have to force myself at home to like try to put that away. Don't look at that for a few hours. And so it's not even about like I don't think about work hours. I mean like I wake up at about six thirty. And I'm answering emails until about 11 at night. And that's my day, right? And sometimes I'm doing that here or there. It works really well for me. It may not work for everyone. And it may not be the greatest thing at times for my family. But, um, but it's a choice that I made in, in the habits that I keep. Um, the other habit for me is like I kind of took the position that I can only do a few things really, really well. So I can do work really, really well. And I can do family really, really well. And I don't do much outside of those two things. So when my guys are like, we're going down to Costa Rica, you should come for a weekend. I'm like, no, <laughs> like, I can't do it. You know, like I do work well, I do family well and everything. I don't really do anything else. You know, like if you want to interact with me socially, you have to come and hang with my family because like, I'm just not that guy. Right. Um, but I found that that's the, what I've committed myself to is I want those two, th I want to be excellent at those two things. And so whatever sacrifices lay outside that, whether it's like training or, fitness or getting great at a sport or hanging out or climbing with friends or something like I don't typically find time for that but I'll tell you like I think I have you know an incredibly an incredible family and I think I have and I have a career I really really love and enjoy so I'm pretty satisfied with choosing those two things and getting really good at them awesome uh so you say that you check your email every single day every single minute I uh, just want to know what mobile uh, mail app do you use oh, uh, our friends really? yeah, our friends over at UCLA they actually helped create this new mail app that was on the top of product hunt it was called polymail oh, yeah. um, I use that it's absolutely amazing oh, yeah? but just want to know what, what mail app you I use mean, I've used uh, most of them I've, I've, I'm back right now to Apple Mail okay. that's not because I necessarily love it like I, I used to be really committed to Exchange an Exchange server because 
Apple Mail pushes every few minutes and right. exchanges real-time delivery. And for some reason, well, I mean, as you can imagine, like it was frustrating to me to think that I didn't get real-time delivery of mail. I didn't like yeah. a five-minute delay on an, on an email send. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I finally, we finally, I, my friend, my company finally forced me off of Exchange. That we're on <laughs> Google Apps Appliance or whatever, and I st- and I use Apple Mail because I'm just so super familiar with it. And I use it both on the Mac and the and the and the and the phone. Airmail, I was deep into for a while, and then I, it was buggy. Like the key commands yeah. weren't fast enough. Um, I've tried most of them. I saw some in my office recently using Polymail. Mm-hmm. I'm super open to it. But also my email, my locally stored like email files, like 65 gigs. Oh wow! <laughs> and so that's wow. the side is a lot of ma- mail programs. Once they cache my stored folder set is so big it'll kill them Mm -hmm. and my contact list is probably 10,000 and so most mail apps can't handle it Mm -hmm. or they have to download so much that like they can never complete the cycle so I'm not a normal mail user so even when I was using airmail I talked to the CEO like every day because like I could because like I kept breaking with size and scale but I just I use a lot of email I mean I use as a highly effective tool and as we talked about you know before we started the podcast or uh, you know we I use a lot of slack a lot of slack we have some college-centric folk uh, yeah. questions that Ben wants to ask you. Right, yeah. yeah. So so we see this pattern um, definitely, like, in the last recent years, there are a lot of colleges that um, have been going towards a more interdisciplinary program and start uh, kind of allowing kids to take classes across business and tech and art. And we're seeing that here at USC in this program mm-hmm. that I'm in. It's called the Ivy and Young Academy, where they're actually taking arts, technology, and business classes across USC and combining them together for us. Um, so... I was just wondering that if you were to be able to go back to college and redo your experience and not go down the marketing path, um, what would you choose to go down and and why? Okay, that's a good question. So, I mean, I certainly love the idea of kind of a multidisciplinary thesis in college and, like, getting exposure to this stuff. And I think that's one of the most, you know, important things about college is, you know, testing a lot of different ideas, finding where you have your passion, and then going deep in that segment to hopefully become a leader in whatever whatever way you choose. So I think that's a neat idea. For me, you know, I, I wish I had, you know, n- knowing where I am now, like I wish I'd gone deeper in finance. I took really uh, lightweight finance courses. I never felt like super in depth on like company analysis. Maybe I would have gotten that if I got my MBA. I essentially got it through just running companies. But um, there's many times where I feel like I need more depth in understanding uh, markets and finance. And there's a lot of CEOs that start companies and they can't uh, read a P&L. And so one skill set, if I was to, like, add points, would be, like, financial depth is important for me. Got it. Uh, obviously, because I'm so focused on growth, marketing works well for me. Um, I think, you know, I, I, did a, I ended up getting exposure to a lot of art because at this time when I ran a magazine, we essentially did all the publishing and, mag- and magazine design. So I did a lot of, I worked with a lot of the tools that artists use. I worked with a lot of artists. Very cool. That was interesting. Um, I never learned, you know, I self-taught myself programming when programming was a lot easier than it was today for web pages. <laughs> during um, college or after? During college. like, But this is like, I, st- I taught myself HTML and maybe some JavaScript. Like, you know, I, I was never, like, I could build websites. At the time, websites were really easy to build. <laughs> I don't think I could build websites today without really learning. But um, I would, I probably should have gone deeper. If I was in college today, I'd probably go deeper on understanding programming languages, understanding network design, uh, because I think it would just allow me to I recognize opportunities and things, understand things a little bit better. Mm-hmm. You know, and then one of the areas that I think is that colleges are really soft on is like like management. Not like not like Fortune five hundred accounting firm management, more like 
management styles with a variety of different individuals and understanding what motivates people and understanding how to how to get them behind you on a cause or rally a team. And that's hard, and it's hard to teach. Uh, but I don't think I walked away with a lot of like depth of management skills or dealing with unique management situations. Maybe you just get that through experience, but I think there's probably some good education you could do around that. Got it. Well, it's been a really fun time in the studio. But guess what? The fun doesn't stop. We have <laughs> our lightning round coming up. So we're going to do this with all of our guests. So we have a series of quick questions. We're all going to go on just pepper you with <laughs> so, all right get ready the last one's a kicker grand this is gonna be fun yeah okay. uh, a, so first always a point of contention we'll start it light favorite book uh right now a book i read with my daughter is ready player one have you guys mm. read ready player one they're about it's, to make a film in it. a movie yeah yeah and it's just like the book's incredible uh so i'd highly recommend it, it kind of talks about the, the uh, a vr enabled future and it's it's a, oh, wow. it's a fun, it's really fun to read duly noted yeah um food everyone likes that you don't you know, when I was uh, seven, I decided I would never eat eggs again. Really? Me too. I hate eggs. Since I was seven. Yeah. Wow. And I, I don't even know whether I do or don't even like eggs. I'm just done with right. it. Right. Yeah. Like <laughs> seven, I'm done. A couple of bad like, experiences. Yeah, I'll eat a cookie, I mean? but I mean, if you brought me like fried eggs or something, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to do that. Hmm. Yeah. I don't feel so alone. Um, what's something, aside from the egg thing, something that uh, most people wouldn't guess about you just based on uh, a shallow knowledge of who you are? Uh, you know, I don't drink. So, like, at a really young age, again, I decided I was just never going to drink. I'm not necessarily sure why. I was, like, 14 at the time or something. And so I just thought, like, I want to do a bunch of big things in life, and I'm just going to focus again on a few things, and I'm just not even going to bring that into my, like, ecosystem. So, like, I always get, like, gifts of... Fancy bottles of wine and champagne, and I'm like, great. So I give it to my staff, but, uh, right. but I just don't drink. Yeah. <laughs> a hobby you used to have, but don't have anymore. How what? A hobby you used to have, but not anymore. A hobby. You know, before I had kids, I surfed a lot. Um, oh, wow. Since I had kids, I haven't surfed a lot, uh, but my kids are now becoming of age to surf, and awesome. so hopefully that'll kick coming back of up. Age. Yeah. Favorite spot to surf? Uh, you know, because I live in Malibu and I learned at Surfrider, I'll probably surf at Surfrider often, but I, we used to live in Manhattan Beach and so we were on 43rd Street a lot. Oh, okay. like, I spent most of my time surfing on that totally crappy break. Brad, yeah. um, what is your biggest pet peeve? Uh, I, I'm not a fl- fan of complaining. I just don't think it helps anything. Yeah. Uh, you know, so I'm not like the most sensitive guy to like, you know, comfort people in times of distress. Like I generally <laughs> look for ways to solve problems or, or a recognition that a problem exists without it being solved. Like, I'm kind of comfortable with both those out- outcomes. When I find myself complaining, I'm kind of disappointed in myself. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, and I feel like I can always find a better way. I just don't feel like it's a constructive way to deal with an issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, favorite music album? Uh, you know, like, I've, I've always I've been, a, like, a super long-time fan of Girl Talk and Skrillex. Okay. You know? And, like, I, I got to do a bunch of stuff with them in MySpace, and that was, like, super fun. And so those albums seem to stay in my playlist for a long period of time. Whose brain would you like to pick? Hmm. Like alive or dead? Yeah. Oh, I don't know. I mean, how do you not say like Einstein or I don't know. Like there's I think there's brilliant people that that understand things way beyond me. And I think the most brilliant of them can explain things in very simple ways. Right. Mm-hmm. Like probably great to spend time with Stephen Hawking or, you know, somebody that's like thinking about much bigger things. Um, favorite company that you've worked for or worked with? You know, I, I, I loved working with News Corp. 
You know, um, I loved the leadership, uh, not only within MySpace, but also just within the News Corp family. I thought, like, Rupert Murdoch was an incredible CEO. I loved the vision the company had. I found that they had brought just, like, very quality people together. It was a really neat organization. Um, and even though it's kind of family-run in a funny way, it would, I thought it was fantastic. So, like, I, I have a favorite time there. But realize I've also only worked for, like, three companies beyond mine. So, <laughs> right. yeah. you know, but either way, News Corp was a really neat business. Yeah. And finally, is a hot dog a sandwich? That's a good question. No, <laughs> a hot dog is not a sandwich. And why not? Because I think because the bread's connected. But then, how would you explain a, a subway sandwich? Oh, because oh, this is a normal answer: the bread being connected. Right. That, see, that was my first instinct, and I agree with you that it's not a sandwich. It's a good question. But I think that there's something more. There's like a some sort of intangible factor to it. It's true. But here's the thing: is like I think I would call a subway sandwich a subway. Really? Ooh. I don't think yeah. I'd call it a sandwich. I, I mean, I understand the word sandwich is in it, but a sandwich to me, in, in essence, has two distinctly separate pieces of bread. Mm. Like, See, like I wouldn't yeah, call I, a pita a sandwich, and that's sure. a connected bread. Okay, yeah, I, I agree on that. I think the, the most compelling... Euro, yeah. <laughs> that's not a sandwich. That's Yeah, no, I agree. And I, I think the most compelling explanation that I've heard, because mm-hmm. I'm generally on the same page, is it's the orientation. Okay. Right. Like yeah. you eat it, you, no other sandwich would you eat but facing upwards. Sub, oh, facing upwards. Yeah, that's true. But you, if you, you if you didn't put ketchup and mustard on that on that hot dog, you might eat it sideways, though. I would never eat it sideways. <laughs> oh. I feel like my son eats his hot dog sideways. Interesting. Tell, he, tell him he's eating he's a sandwich. So. Wrong way. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Good answer. Thank you. You probably well, shouldn't eat hot dogs, to be honest. Yeah, it's not too good. It's probably maybe we should say they're not food. Oh, good. All right. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> You're actually the first person that said a Subway sandwich is not a sandwich. Yeah, <laughs> That basically destroys the whole argument that everyone has. So, <laughs> yeah. well, we'll leave it at that. Anyways, thank you guys, our listeners, so much for coming in and tuning into our show. We'll be back soon with a new edition of our podcast. And just before we end, if you have any suggestions for our show, if you have any suggestions for who we should interview, anything you want to tell us, just send us praise or criticism, whatever, uh, throw it our way at xm at sparksc.org. And if you even happen to have an answer to the hot dog question, we're happy to hear. So soliciting answers from that too, <laughs> xm at sparksc.org. Anyways, signing off, I'm Mark Pockervon. Greg Liner. Ben Shea. And we'd like to give a huge thank you to Mike Jones for coming in today and taking out the time to talk to us today. Thanks for thank having you. me. Of course, it's been fun. See you guys soon. Bye.